Well, for those of you who weren't able to be with us uh, last week, let me catch you up on what happened last week and then what's happening today and, uh, and next week. Uh, I shared last week that before we start a new series in September that I felt led that uh, we were to spend uh, last Sunday and then today that I was to spend those, uh, those Sundays reminding us of some important things that have been covered in previous sermons uh, that I've preached over the last two and a half years here. Uh, they say that repetition is a good teacher. And what I'm hoping is that by reminding us of some of these important things that we've shared over the last couple years, that maybe these things will get a little deeper into our hearts, and that if we failed to act on them the first time that we heard them, that by offering this second chance to hear them again, that perhaps this time around uh, they'll, they'll grow a little deeper, deeper roots in our hearts and we'll actually act on them, we'll actually begin to apply a few of these things uh, to our lives. And so I found eight things uh, from the past two and a half years that I felt like I was supposed to highlight for us in these two weeks. And then what we're going to do next week is we're going to take a look at some foundational things about our church. Uh, some things that all of us, obviously if we're uh, regular members here, that all of us need to be on the same page about and that we need to be walking in unity with each other uh, regarding. And, and so that's what we're up to. And uh, if you weren't able to be here last week, I'd encourage you to go online and catch up. Uh, listen to last, last week's sermon where I reminded us of four important things. I'm just going to mention those briefly here. Uh, I reminded us that Christian parents must take seriously their responsibility as spiritual guardians of their children. And there are two indispensable things to taking that responsibility seriously. The first is that Christ has to be the highest value and the highest priority in your home, higher than anything else. Higher than money, higher than career, higher than sports, Christ has to be the highest value. And then the, the second indispensable thing, if you're going to take seriously that responsibility to be the spiritual guardian of your children, is that you have to make the church the center of your family's life and fellowship. Uh, uh, other relationships, other, uh, uh, other social groups that you can be a part of are all great. Not, we're not saying don't do those things. But we're saying the church should be the center of your family's life and fellowship. The second thing that I reminded us of last week is that everyone we interact with is a person in need of healing words. And so all of us should be people who are regularly looking for opportunities to speak healing words to other people. Respond as the Spirit prompts you to say something encouraging, something kind, something uplifting to another person. The third thing I reminded us of is that life is better when it's appreciated as a gift instead of being clung to as an entitlement. And then the fourth thing that I encouraged us last week was to not give up. That we shouldn't give up when spiritual growth is slow. We shouldn't give up when living right doesn't seem to be paying off. We shouldn't give up when life is difficult. And we should not give up when we have sinned yet again. We should never give up because the enemy of our soul does not win over us when life is hard. The enemy doesn't win over us when we've sinned again. The enemy doesn't win over us when growth is slow or we are discouraged. 
The enemy only wins in any ultimate sense when we give up. God involved himself with us because he intended to see his work through to completion. And he knows that he is fully able to complete his work in us as long as we do the one thing that only we can do. Don't give up. Never give up. So if you were not here last week, I'd encourage you to listen online, and I hope you'll be encouraged by what you hear. So today I have four more important reminders that I felt impressed to highlight, again, in hopes of getting them deeper into our hearts and giving us another chance to act on them and apply them to our lives. And the first one comes uh, from a sermon that I preached on April 29th, 2018. The sermon was titled, Tame Busyness by controlling the use of screens. And everybody said amen. (laughs) All right. And here's the reminder. We have to control our devices, our screens, technology, instead of being controlled by them. There is a lot that is really, really good about technology. There's a lot that's really good about our devices, our computers, our tablets, our phones, these powerful computers that we carry around in our pockets or our our purses. You know, it's great to be able to carry the Bible around in your pocket. It helps a lot of you because it it allows me to think you're looking at your Bible on Sunday mornings, when in reality you're probably doing something else. Uh, But it's great to be able to carry your Bible around Uh, in your pocket, on your phone. It's great to be able to stay in touch with your family throughout the day through text, quick text, or uh, quick calls as needed. We've really enjoyed the Find My iPhone feature that allows us to verify that children are where children say they are. Of course, it's also caused some stress, as Michelle at times has said, this makes it look like he's in a ditch in Pickerington. I'm like, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think he's somewhere in that area, but not in the ditch. And, uh, but, but overall, that's been a really helpful uh, feature on the phone. There's even much that's really good about social media. We get to see and interact with people, many of us, that we probably would have never seen again at any point in our lives ever, if not for social media. I have reconnected with some folks I went to uh, middle school in my freshman year of high school with. uh, When I lived in Texas, I would have never seen or interacted with those folks again, ever. And while it's not the same as an in-person relationship, it's just, it's nice to see what people are doing and make that kind of connection. And so there's much that's good about technology. There's a lot that's good about screens and the different devices that we have, but it's not all good. These things present many, many dangers to us. I'm convinced that if the impact of Facebook and the online world was fully known, it would be the greatest cause of divorce that there has ever been. I'm I'm convinced of this. Uh, Social media is costing people their careers, as sometimes people are losing their jobs because of things they post and Uh, Someone who's given themselves out of control political correctness uh, and and has authority in their lives, you know, 
takes their job from them because of something like that. Sometimes people are losing their jobs because they truly post something insane that they should have never posted or they, or they post pictures of themselves in the midst of deplorable behavior and their company says, look, we're not, we're not being associated with that or, or sometimes people never get an opportunity at a job because a company checks their social media and says, yeah, this person is nuts. We're not going to, to hire them. And so there's a lot of dangers that come with social media. One of the greatest dangers that's being written about more and more is that social media and the incessant use of devices and screens seems to be, many are believing, many people who look into this believe that it is linked to increasing loneliness in substantial percentages of the population. That it's feeding feelings of purposelessness and hopelessness. And some believe there's even a, uh, there's growing evidence of a connection between these technologies and the increasing rates of suicide that we are seeing in our country. Technology offers many good things. But with technology, there are a variety of dangers. With these technologies of our devices, one of the dangers is the danger of addiction. Addiction. Second Peter 2.18 tells us that we are slaves to whatever masters us. We're slaves to whatever has control over us. And technology has enslaved many people. Technology, let's be honest, has enslaved many of us in this room. If you cannot go five minutes without checking your phone, you've probably been enslaved by technology. Constantly looking for new messages. Constantly scanning social media. The addiction is destroying our attention spans. It is wrecking havoc on our ability to concentrate on anything for more than just a couple of minutes. It's damaging basic human kindness and interaction. Where it used to be, at least for decent human beings, that if you stood in a line, say at the BMV, even if you weren't an outgoing person, at some point in that wait, you were probably like saying something to the person beside you. Hey, what do you think about the weather out there? Sunny. <laughs> but at least there was interaction. Hey, how about those Buckeyes? OH. I, you know, something, something. It may not have been in depth. It may not have, you know, really amounted to a whole lot. But there was some, some human interaction that was going on. Or if you were in a waiting room, you might actually talk to someone. And now we all just retreat into our devices. Can't even bother to look up from them as we're walking. So we run into each other. It's the only human interaction we get. Bumping into somebody because we didn't look up from our phones. In addition to the danger of addiction, there is the danger uh, that, that, of course, is fueled by that addiction of becoming slothful. Becoming listless. Devices, screens, they tempt us toward wasting away every moment in passive and pointless things. Stealing time from family relationships and friend relationships and even time with God. Proverbs 13.4 says, The sluggard craves 
and gets nothing. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 say, The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more. And I think that those verses seem like a perfect description of our addiction to technology. We crave more news. So we click from this article to this article to this article to the next article. We, we click on this link and that link and another link. We play this game and that game and another game. We refresh the website that we just read through to see if they've posted anything new on it. We look at Facebook incessantly. See how many likes we have. See how many likes we have. And if we have a few, we feel good. And if no one's liked it, we feel bad. It's been an hour. Nobody has liked the cute picture of my dog. And we feel bad. We crave more and more, and so we become consumed. Here's another thing about social media that, that uh, people who look into these things are, are uh, recognizing. Social media, our addiction to it, makes us feel busy, even when we're not busy. Because we're just being bombarded by stuff, and, and so we feel busy. But we're not busy with recreation or a hobby or play or study. We're busy with the clutter of everything going on in the world being at our fingertips. And so it overwhelms us, even as we're just laying on our bed in a dark room. We're overwhelmed because the entire world is right there. And we're looking at everything going on in the world. Somebody got hit by a truck in Bangladesh. 20 years ago, you would have never known that happened. Now you click on the article and read it. And once again, you're reading a negative, sad story. It distracts us from meaningful and soul-satisfying human interaction, productive pursuits, time with God, and all of that leads to feelings of purposelessness. Again, technology is being linked to depression, especially among the young. This device-fed sloth and listlessness is an indication that technology is leading people to the feeling expressed by the writer of Ecclesiastes in verses one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Technology is good, but there are huge dangers attached to it, and so we have to be people who are willing to control technology, control our devices, control our screens, instead of being controlled by them. And so let me quickly share a few practical things that each of us should do to take control of our devices. First of all, I want to mention that I have read a number of articles over the last couple years about how many of the tech titans of Silicon Valley, especially with their children, only allow the use of their own technology in very limited uh, quantities. Very limited quantities. Because they have realized the negative potential 
that exist with their own technology that can be very beneficial, but they recognize the negative potential of it. I think if those who understand it best are concerned and work to control its usage, we should do that as well. So we don't need to be antagonistic toward technology, but we should cultivate a healthy suspicion of technology, recognizing what I've been talking about here today, that while there is much that's good about it, it doesn't mean there aren't great dangers attached to it as well. And so we need to be on guard. So watch how much time you're using it. Watch for negative consequences. I think, I think I shared recently, or maybe back in this sermon, that I got on Facebook in 2009, so 10 years. Before 2009, you know, I, like, well, let me just say it this way. I noticed more melancholy in my life post-Facebook than pre-Facebook. I noticed that. And so I've taken some measures to start to change that. One thing I did is I took Facebook off of my phone. I, I don't look at Facebook on my phone, only if I'm sitting at the computer. Because I noticed something. I noticed a change in me. And, and, and so I took some control uh, over that. And, and so, you know, watch for negative consequences. Are you showing signs of addiction? Are you finding yourself more inclined, as I just said, to feelings of melancholy or loneliness? Are you a married person finding yourself constantly scrolling through pictures of a high school or a college girlfriend or boyfriend? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. Is, uh, is political media causing you to feel angry all the time? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> So have healthy suspicion about technology and limit its use. That is important. Limit its use. We have to establish technology boundaries. And so let me give you a few that I shared when I first preached this message. Stop taking your phone to bed. Don't check Facebook during church. <laughs> Don't text during meals. Don't have your phone available during meals. I can't say I've done all of these, but these are things we should, should at least consider doing. Physically separate yourself from your phone during times when you should not be interacting with your phone. Set aside time each day when you don't interact with your phone at all. Commit to, day, to a day a week of no phone or device use at all. Don't make checking your phone the first thing you do in the morning and the last thing you do before you go to sleep. And by all means, don't check your phone if you wake up in the middle of the night. Read a real book. You know, one with pages. Read a real book. Go to real places. Talk to real people. Don't allow your experience of life to be on a bright screen in a dark room. Don't allow that to be your experience of life. So there are a number of other practical things that we can do to limit the use of these technologies in our lives, but 
check out the sermon from April 2018 uh, if you want more of those. Here's the second important reminder that I felt directed to share today. If you want a better life, you've got to choose better thoughts. You've got to choose better thoughts. This came from a message preached on January 29th, 2017 that was titled, Improve Your Life, Choose Better Thoughts. John Milton in Paradise Lost said this, The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. That's kind of deep. Let me say it again. <laughs> the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. And I can attest to this in my own life. I've been in seasons of my life that were objectively good. Things were going well for me. But I was having a difficult time spiritually and or emotionally. Usually those are linked. Uh, I've been in seasons of life, on the other hand, where things were pretty doggone difficult. But I was in a good place in my inner life. I was good spiritually. I was good emotionally. And why I could be unhappy in a good season or happy in a rough season had almost everything to do with what was happening in my thought life, what I was allowing my mind to focus on. We convince ourselves that it is not possible for us to do what I'm about to say, but the truth is that we get to choose our thoughts. We get to choose what we think about. Now, we are not always able to choose, we're really, in my opinion, not at all able to choose what might initially enter our mind. Some thought that will just show up. You know, you know just like, there it is. We, we can't choose that. But we can choose the thoughts that we allow to stay there. And we can tell thoughts that shouldn't be there that they have to go. We really can do that. We really do have that ability. We convince ourselves that we can't control our thoughts, and so we fail to discipline them. And then we allow them to go wherever they want to go. We accommodate these undisciplined thoughts, and when we do so, these undisciplined thoughts become very destructive in our lives. And they can have absolutely devastating consequences on our emotional and spiritual health. Undisciplined and destructive thoughts come in many forms. Self-defeating talk. I can't do that. I always screw up. Nobody ever likes me. Negative assumptions. They won't do what they say. They've never liked me. Negative comparisons with others. She's so beautiful. I'm just average. He's so handsome. I look weird. I don't have these thoughts. I'm just I'm just giving I'm just giving examples. I'm just giving examples. So. Negative reflections on the past. How much we allow ourselves to think and what we allow ourselves to think about the negative people in our lives. You know, the extra grace required people in our lives. 
The desire to blame others for things that we need to own ourselves. Struggling to forgive yourself. The fear of making a mistake. All of these kind of thoughts, if they are allowed to run free in our minds, they are incredibly destructive to our emotional and spiritual well-being. And so we have to choose to reject them. And we have to choose to replace them with better things. And here's the truth. We can do that. You can do that. The Bible affirms that we can do that. This is not Tony Robbins. This is the Bible. Second Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Make it obedient to Christ. We don't have to tolerate the thoughts that lead us into temptation. We don't have to tolerate the thoughts that destroy our self-esteem. We don't have to tolerate the thoughts that make us miserable on an objectively good day. We can take those thoughts captive and we can make them obedient to Christ. We can rid ourselves of the negative thoughts and replace them with thoughts that are pleasing to Jesus, which are thoughts that promote and improve good spiritual and emotional health. It works like this, something like this. I make a mistake. I make a big mistake. Maybe one that all of my, I'm saying this collectively, we all experience this. Maybe one that others know about at my job. And it's really embarrassing. And so my mind starts screaming things at me like this. You are so stupid. You never do anything right. Everyone here has always known you are a big screw up. So we can't necessarily control that those thoughts come. But we can control what we do when they come. Instead of allowing those thoughts free reign in our brains, we can take them captive and we can make them obedient to Christ. And so we do that by saying things to ourselves like, it's true I did screw up, but I'm not a screw up. I'm created in the image of God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am loved by God. I am loved by my family. My value isn't based on never screwing up. My value comes from God and who I am in Him. And in addition to all of that, 99.9% of the time I do my job well. And all those other people screw up way more than I do. <laughs> we can take control of our thoughts. We can choose our thoughts. We really can. The Bible says so. The Bible says so. So don't tell me we can't control our thoughts. God says that we can. Here's what Philippians 4, 4 through 9 says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Finally, brothers and sisters, 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then Paul says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me. In other words, this is what I've taught you. Think about good things. Fill your mind with commendable things. Paul says, do that. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Don't be anxious. Pray. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. Think on good things and the God of peace will be with you. Here's what this passage lets us know. There is a connection between what we think about and our experience of peace. That text makes that connection. And so if we want a better life, we have to choose better thoughts, and we can do it. We can take our thoughts captive, make them obedient to Jesus. We can reject negative thoughts, replace them with thoughts that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And doing that's going to improve our lives. It's going to allow us to maintain emotional and spiritual health even when things are not going the way that we want to, want them to. What thoughts have you allowed to run free in your mind that are having a destructive impact on your emotional and spiritual health? I encourage you to identify them, to take control of them, to reject them, and to replace them with better thoughts. You really can do it because God is in his words, says that you can. The third important reminder for today was shared in a message from September 16th, 2018, and was titled, Blessed, Those Who Recognize Their Need of God. And that title is itself the third important reminder. The person who always recognizes their need of God is a blessed person. And this comes to us from Matthew 5, 7, the, uh, I'm sorry, 5, 3, the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now this phrase, poor in spirit, when we just read it without any understanding of, of what it's really uh, saying, it can leave us with a very different impression of what it means than what the reality is. If you read poor in spirit without understanding the meaning of the word poor in the original language of the Bible, then you might be left thinking the person who is poor in spirit needs to do what we just talked about and choose better thoughts. But that's not what this is about. Now, in the message from 2018, I went into some detail that I'm not going to do today. But if you take the meaning of poor in both Greek and Aramaic, and you understand this beatitude in light of the meaning of that word in those languages, what this beatitude is basically saying is this. Blessed are those who have realized their own utter helplessness, and so they have put their whole trust in God. Seeing ourselves as helpless is a blessed condition because it's only those who recognize this about themselves that ever turn to God and place their full faith and trust in Him. And so we can understand this beatitude as saying, blessed are those who are humble enough to admit that they need help 
and have turned to God for the help that they need. Attitudes of self-sufficiency keep us from recognizing our need of God in a variety of ways. One is as it relates to salvation. Attitudes of self-sufficiency keep people from coming to Christ and receiving the free gift of salvation that he offers us. And attitudes of self-sufficiency keep even Christians from turning to God for the help that they need in life. Instead, trying to shoulder the burdens of life in their own strength and missing out on the help that God wants to give them. We often think that the key to a blessed life is being in control, taking the bull by the horns, imposing our will on life. But Jesus says the way to a blessed life, the way to life that has unassailable joy, which is actually the meaning of blessed in the beatitude, the way we have that, the way we receive that kind of life, live that kind of life, is by releasing control of our lives to God, realizing that we are not self-sufficient, realizing that we're unable to save ourselves, and so we turn to Christ for salvation. Realizing that life actually is too big for us, and so we turn to God for the empowering of the Holy Spirit to enable us to face life and live life in His strength instead of our own strength. One of the best things that ever happens to us is when we come to realize our helplessness. That, that we need help outside of ourselves. When we come to realize in response to that, that God is the help that we need. And so we turn to him and we choose to place our full trust in him. And I pray that some of us here today... We'll do that. And here's the fourth reminder for today. God must be the resting place of your heart. Said another way, God must be the one that you fully entrust your heart to. Said another way, God must be your most important relationship. God must be your closest friend. This theme has come up multiple times in sermons the past couple years. And it has done so because it has been my greatest concern for those of us that I'm privileged to lead here at Vineyard Christian Church. The issue of God being the true resting place of our heart showed up in a sermon called Bitterness, Friends, Joy, God from August 19th, 2018, one year ago this weekend. It showed up in a sermon called Take Care of Your Heart from September 2nd, 2018. And it showed up twice very recently uh, just this past June in sermons I preached on June 23rd and 30th titled Whole Heart Trust and a Trouble-Proofed Heart. I take the time to mention each of those sermons because I hope that if you haven't heard them, that you'll make a point of listening to them. Because this is an extremely important topic, and I really can't do the topic justice in, in a summary reminder type message uh, such as what I'm preaching today. And so I hope that if you haven't listened to them, or if you did, but you feel like you should do so again, that you'll go and do that. And so I'm going to highlight a few important things about this topic just to serve as reminders to those of you who heard the other messages. But, but again, go listen if you didn't. St. Augustine wrote this very true statement. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
Augustine's statement communicates the truth that everything that we give our hearts to, even good things, will ultimately leave us unsettled and unsatisfied until we finally come to the realization that we have been made for God and that it's only when we truly rest our hearts in God that we'll finally have the peace and contentment and purpose, direction for life that we desire. There are many things that we rest our hearts on and in besides God. And by rest our hearts on or in, what I mean is that our contentment and our peace and our happiness, our emotional health is resting on those things. As long as those things are good, we're good. But if those things aren't good, then we're not good anymore. We rest our hearts on our careers. Some people rest their hearts on their education or their income. Some have rested their hearts on their athletic ability or uh, some other aspect of their physical well-being. Some people rest their hearts on their social status. Many people will rest their hearts on a romantic relationship. Some people have rested their hearts on a family member, a parent, a grandparent, a spouse. We rest our hearts on a friend relationship. All of these things that I've mentioned and, and many more that might even be coming to your minds right now, we entrust our hearts to these things. Like our heart's well-being is dependent on these things. And all of these things that I've mentioned are good things. They're wonderful things. But they are not up to the job of being the resting place of our hearts. They're not up to it. They weren't made for that purpose. If a career is the resting place of our heart and it's taken away from us, what then? Our hearts are devastated. Our peace is destroyed. If it's social status and we lose that status, what then? If it's a romantic relationship and one eludes us or we had it, and then it came to an end. If that's the resting place of our heart, what then? Our peace is shattered, our hearts are broken. If a family member is the resting place of our heart, a family member can disappoint us. A family member can be taken from us. And so if that's what we've entrusted our hearts to, what then? For peace and purpose and contentment. God must be the resting place of our hearts. Because we were designed for God to be the resting place of our hearts. And because God is the only one who is up to caring for our heart the way that it needs to be cared for. Even best friends and family members will sometimes let us down. But God is always reliable. Let's consider one common resting place of people's hearts, friends. Friends are helpful. Friends are needed. They really are. But they are not the proper resting place for our hearts. Proverbs 14:10 says each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else 
can share its joy. When I read this proverb uh, back before I uh, first preached on this, I, I was so struck with this idea, which I had been thinking about. And then when I came to the proverb, it was just an, an affirmation of what I had been thinking about. This lets us know that there is a place in each of us that no one else ever gets to. There's an aspect of our inner life that no one else ever knows about, ever experiences. They can't see it. They can't access that place. There are experiences we all have in life, hurts, joys, thoughts, various feelings and attitudes that no one else ever experiences with us, even when we tell them about it. They still don't understand it in the way that we understand it. They, they, can't, they can't be inside of us. They can't be in our brain. And so there's stuff always going on that only we know about. And so in a sense, we experience much of life alone, even when we're surrounded by our closest friends and family. We're alone in that spot no one else can access. In that inner place where it's just us, where no one else can reach, this is why it becomes so important for God to be the resting place of our hearts. Because in that place where no one else can reach, where it's just us, it's not actually just us. It's not. Because while no one else can access that place, God is in that place with us. God is there. God is there. He, he is in there with us. Psalm 139, 1 and 4 tells us about this. Let's us know that God uh, knows us in a way that even our best friend can't. That God is with us in that place where others can't reach. Here's what it says, Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You understand my thoughts even from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. Get this line. You are aware of all my ways. And then get this next one. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. In other words, you're in my thoughts with me. I don't have to speak it for you to know about it. You're in there with me. Friends are helpful, but God is the real answer to our heart problems because only God knows us fully and is with us in that inner place that no one else can reach. Even when we come to the place where we have to face our own mortality, even when we come to that moment when this life is ending for us and we're transitioning to eternal life, that path that each of us has to walk alone, no one else can do it for us. Even then, we're not actually alone because God is with us where others cannot be. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk, Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? 
for you are with me. Friends are helpful, but God has to be the resting place for our hearts because God is with us in the place that no one else can reach. He is always with us. We were created for him. Our hearts will only truly be at rest when they are rested on, when they are rested in him. Where you rest your heart, how you care for your heart is hugely important. In fact, there's nothing more important than maintaining a healthy, inward, spiritual, emotional life. There is nothing more important than where you choose to rest your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. Make sure you're resting it on God. Finally, finally, there's hope. We're getting close to the end. This is treated more fully in the sermon from June 30th, but I didn't want to leave this unsaid today. The key to resting your heart on the Lord, the key to fully trusting God, the key to having a heart that is so rested on God and secure in God that it's okay even when the disappointments of life come, the key to all of that is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. When you have the fear of the Lord, then you have life that is really life. You are able to be contented, and life is untouched by trouble, which does not mean that it's trouble-free. What it means is that the troubles of life don't destroy our contentment, our peace, our joy. They don't control or destroy, I'm sorry, our emotional and spiritual health. That we're able to be contented and joyful and peaceful even in the trouble, even when the relationship doesn't work out, even when the job is lost, even when the social status changes. So if the fear of the Lord is key to fully trusting God, is key to having this peace and contentment that can survive against the difficulties of life, then what is the fear of the Lord? Very quickly, here's what the fear of the Lord is. Four things. It's awe and respect for the greatness of God. Understanding how powerful He is, at least to the extent that we approach trying to understand that. Being confident in the greatness of God. Secondly, it's when we come to recognize that knowing God is the most important thing in life. And based on coming to that conviction, that understanding that knowing Him is the most important life, then the third thing that defines the fear of the Lord is actually coming to know and love God. And then here is the fourth aspect of the fear of the Lord. It's when we get to the place where God is enough for us. God is enough. That's the place we have to get to. For spiritual and emotional health, joy, contentment, peace, no matter what life 
brings to us. When we get to that place where God is enough for us, then we can appreciate friends and family and jobs and money and all of those different things. But our hearts are not dependent on any of them because we have not rested our hearts on them. We have not entrusted our hearts to those things. We have rested and entrusted our hearts to God. And so we're able to appreciate all of those things without putting the pressure on them that they were never meant to hold. We can do that because we've discovered the fear of the Lord. Come to the place where God really is enough. He really is enough. Friends, life is wonderful, but it's full of difficulty. It's full of disappointment. And we all end up suffering loss throughout life. Like, there's no avoidance. We suffer loss in this life. To endure all of that and remain contented and joyful. To endure all that and maintain a spiritual and emotionally healthy life. God has to be the resting place of your heart. And so I plead with all of us here today to see God for who he is. The ultimate place of safety for you. The ultimate place of safety for your heart. I plead with you to see that. To embrace that truth. And then to give your heart to him. And begin to experience his loving care for you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let's stand.